Good day, everyone. Monday, December 4. Got a great, great speaker, Dave Lundgren, with us in the house today. Talk about how he sees things. Known Dave a number of years. Uh, worked at uh, Wellington for a long time. A lot of smart guys, so always interested what Dave has to say. Won't uh, deliberate too much. Let's just get through our the state and history. This is kind of an interesting one. It was a, a bit of a, a bit of a shortage of really interesting things. But at any rate, I picked out a bunch of weird ones. So here we go. In uh, 1674, Father Marquette built the first dwelling in what is now known as Chicago. That's 1674. In 1909, the oldest still operating NHL franchise is officially established by J. Ambrose O'Brien and Jack Laviolette. They created the Club de Hockey Canadien, known today as the Montreal Canadiens. Then I guess the final one, we'll have two sports uh, incidents today. This one, it seems like it was just yesterday. This was a crazy one. I'm old enough to remember when, on December 4th, 1997, the NBA suspended Latrell Sprewell attacking the coach. For those of you who are basketball fans, um, P.J. Carlesimo was uh, the coach of the uh, Golden State Warriors. And in practice, um, I'm just reading here. Yeah, I remember this now. Sprewell had a verbal confrontation with Carlesimo when the coach told him to put a little mustard on the pass. So I guess Sprewell didn't like it. He grabbed him and started choking him. Um, he was ultimately suspended and lost $6 million dollars in wages. It was 1997. Anyway, enough of that. So Dave, welcome. Good to see you. How are you doing, Dave? Dave? I'm doing fantastic. Can you, can you hear me? Good. We're good. We're good. Uh, Outstanding. Uh, always keen to hear what you have to say. Um, you kind of have a, uh, I'd say a low profile or profile, uh, not commensurate with your, uh, uh, investment, uh, acumen and your experience. So I'm really glad that you've agreed to uh, come out and share your wisdom with us today. Um, so Dave, why don't you just tell, um, tell, tell them a little about yourself, your background, how you do things, and we'll just get into the markets. Dave, take it away. Sounds great. And uh, thanks, George, very much for having me on. Um, you know, you're, you're correct to say that I'm not extremely or, or, or very well known, but um, you know, I've been in the business for 30 years, uh, mostly on the buy side. And that's probably why I'm not uh, very well known, but nonetheless, I I think of the companies that I've worked at uh, Georgia. I was at Fidelity. I don't think we overlapped. I, I left in uh, in '02, uh, so I, I was there in '99 to '02, and I think you would you left in in the '90s. '91, yeah, so we missed each other. Yep. Yeah, I guess we missed each other. <laughs> um, but uh, and and then I I also spent uh, the the last. 13 years of my uh, buy side career um, at, over at Wellington on the on the technical research team where we managed uh, at the time was the largest uh, trend following portfolio where it's just strictly trend following discretionary trend following is almost four billion in assets managing for uh, large institutions, um, state pensions, uh, high net worth, uh, things like that. And uh, and. I, I just, uh, I think in 2019 or 20, just made the decision that I wanted to uh, 
kind of move on and start my own business and start my own fund and build a biz- research business around that. And so I, I informed um, my, my colleagues at Wellington at the time that I, I was going to be moving on. And of course, COVID hit. And if anybody uses trend following or technical analysis uh, in their, in their process, they know that if, if ever there's a time when, when trend following in technical analysis is most of service or of use, it's definitely in these chaotic times when nothing else makes sense. And so I, I, you know, I love Wellington. It's uh, I still to this day have some of my best friends are still there. And, and so I, I just told them that I would stick around for the year and kind of do, do my best to navigate the firm through what was obviously a, a historic uh, uh, period. And then I, so that I en- en- ended up just uh, leaving at the end of um, 20 and uh, took a year off formulated the process for the launching the fund that I'm now running as well as the research business that I have. And so the idea is that the the research business is is basically the the research that drives the activity and the actions that I take in the fund. And then uh, and then I I've uh, also set up a business uh, a research business where I'm also selling that research to uh, institutions, uh, high net worth individuals, as well as RAAs and, and, and planners and that kind of thing. So, so in, uh, in addition to that, I'm also, one of the things I did while I took the year off, uh, after, after Wellington and before launching my own businesses, uh, along with Tyler Wood over at the, um, uh, the CMT association launched the fill the gap podcast, which we, which we do is every month we, we host, as a guest, uh, a CMT charter holder, and we just kind of run through their process, their history, and what they're seeing on the markets and whatnot. And it turns out it's it, it, it's turned out to be one of the the more um, well followed financial podcasts. So we're pretty proud of that, and we have a blast doing it. And it's something we do every month. Um, but nonetheless, I mean, I I've been doing uh, investing for over thirty years, and for almost the entirety of my career, I've been focused on technical analysis, trend following, momentum, and things like that. And and that's not to say that I don't believe in fundamentals. In fact, in, in conversations uh, about investing, if somebody someone were to ask me what's more important, fundamentals or trend following and technicals and charts and things like that, I, I would say without question, the most important thing is is fundamentals because ultimately without strong fundamentals, there, there, there are no strong price trends. And so, um, you know, we we need to be mindful of that. And then but what we also need to be mindful of is, is a very uh, distinct differentiation between fundamentals, which again, to me, there's nothing more important than fundamentals and opinions about fundamentals, which is where we all tend to go awry. And we get to trouble when we have these strongly uh, held views, especially if we spend six months researching a company and, and uh, traveling all over the world, meeting with competitors and, and suppliers and and members of Congress trying to get a sense for what this particular company does. And we 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 vest a lot of our time. Maybe we miss our kids' baseball team baseball uh, game in an effort to try to really dig in and research this company fundamentally. You can see how the behavioral aspect of investing can really embed your view, uh, despite the fact that things are changing. And, and 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 so it's not it's not that the the fundamentals don't matter. I just think that we can get in trouble when we when we really uh, embrace a fundamental view and it's hard to change our minds when we have so much vested in it. So the way, the way that I think about it is, is, you know, fundamentals matter. Uh, there's nothing more important, but the best fundamental analyst on the planet is without question, the market itself. It's the best macro strategist. It's the best um, portfolio manager, the best analyst on the planet. And that's why it's so hard to beat. 
and this is, you know, in my career, this has sort of been my quest is, is to try to break down that, that barrier that, that exists in people's minds about what technical analysis and trend following is all about. There, it, there is no disconnect between fundamental investing and trend investing. It's just a matter of who do you want to listen to? Do you want to listen to yourself? Which is fine. You can do that. I'm not saying don't do fundamental analysis. I'm just saying that at the end of the day, um, when you, when you look at all of, I think we can all agree that one of the best fundamental investors to have ever lived uh, is Warren Buffett. And, um, and I, but I can tell you without question, I'll, I'll guarantee this um, without even, without even looking at the data because it's so inviolable. It's, it's, it's just, it's a truth. It's not, it, it can't exist any other way that you cannot find a stock that Warren Buffett did well in that did not have positive trend and outperforming. That you know it, the reason he beat the market was because the stuff he owned beat the market, mm-hmm. and so what what I've what I've done is I've just developed a process that just connects the dots between these long term trends and um, and the fundamentals, and and with with the notion being that that the the the, the long term trend of the market is the market's opinion of the fundamentals, and so when you observe trend inflections in the time frame in these long-term timeframes, you should be making the base case assumption that something is happening fundamentally to warrant this trend inflection one direction or the other. And this actually, this notion holds in- incredible importance today because of what's been happening for the last, say, two years. We'll talk about that. But the whole the whole process that I've developed, and, and I have a couple of slides if you want to go through them at, at some point in our conversation, just to kind of walk through it and what they're saying today, is that is that if you can systematically identify the long-term trend, and, and, and again, if you if you believe the, the notion that the long-term trend is driven by fundamentals, and you can systematically identify where every single stock, say 2,600 to 2,500 stocks in the U.S., is located on, on this uh, schematic in terms of trend, the, the value of that is you can then say, well, okay, if I, if, I, if I can do this for every stock, I can then say, well, where are they? Where what's the what's the market's fundamental opinion in aggregate? And the way you answer that question is, is, well, where are all these stocks in this long term fundamentally driven trend? And um, and I think if you just let that process systematically dictate what you're doing in a portfolio, there's, you know, without question, you're not going to buy the low and sell the high. But I don't know of anybody who ever has. But the, what you're really trying to do is you're trying to latch on to and stay invested in either on the long side or the short side, the, the you know, 80% of a trend, however, however you define that, that trend or, you know, that time frame, you're really just trying to capture 80% of it, like capture the middle of it without any forecast as to how long it might take. And I think if you, if you can take your analysis, like, like if you were to take my process and, and, and try to do it on intraday timeframes, obviously it would be, it's trend following, so it works. But the problem with that is, and this is a notion that goes all the way back to the late 1800s with Charles Dow himself, who we consider to be the the grandfather of technical analysis, and in, in, in that is that the shorter the time frame of your analysis, it's not that it's not valid to do technical analysis on hourly charts. In fact, that's that's how I cut my teeth as a technician thirty years ago. Um, but when, when you do that, when you transition to hourly charts, you've completely disconnected your analysis from the market's opinion of the fundamentals. And so, for that reason, when when you when I show you these charts, and I just I'm, I'm not saying that this is better or worse. I'm just I'm, I want to make this point now before we get really into the meat of the conversation so that you understand where I'm coming from. So for me, short term is the weekly chart. And to me, that's the shortest you can go without really truly fully disconnecting yourself from the fundamentals that are driving the trend. So 
short term to me when i say short term i'm i'm talking about what what is the average weekly chart doing and then when i say medium term that's the monthly chart and when and when i say long term that's the quarterly chart so for most technicians and again this isn't right or wrong i'm just trying to put things in perspective the um most technicians would look at the uh, the weekly chart as being the long term chart the daily charts the medium term and then the hourly charts the short term which again is if that was the what i was trying to do that's exactly what i would do but i'm just trying to make sure that we understand when i say short term i'm not talking about 15 minute charts um so you know that's that's what i'm doing and and uh launched the fund back in march of 22 right into the throes of a uh, of a bear market so uh, that's a, that's been a joy and a lot of fun but i think that's probably good enough on on the intro and maybe we can you know george turn it over to questions and talk about markets and sure. see what we're doing for sure th th thanks for that dave so Dave, yeah. just so you know i put the um the, the slides you sent me they're up in the nest um and you can see them there. For those of you that can't read the nest, just go to my Twitter feed. And Dave has some slides he wants to speak to. So, Dave, why don't you contextualize where we are right now? Um, you and I have been having a dialogue for quite a while, and uh, you've been bullish for a long while. And, and, and where are we in the overall scheme of things? Um, so maybe sort of set, set the table, and we can get into more granular topics. Yeah, so um, I, I would say that, that of all the statements that I've made over my career that kind of Burke people because it just sounds so stupid to say, um, but it's it's incredibly valuable to at least start your thinking this way because it kind of sets the stage for you know what what might come next. But ultimately, again, if you remember when you when you talk about this time frame of trend, the market can only do one of three things: it can either go up, down, or sideways. And I and I, and I think in any given moment in time, you actually have enough information to eliminate one of those scenarios. Not necessarily endorse one, but really eliminate one. Like the odds of X happening are very low because of, of the way the data is right now. And so the, the value of that is if you can eliminate one of the scenarios, then you can invest for the other two. And I think it's fair to say that you can never really eliminate sideways. I mean, for, for any reason, almost no matter what the data says, the market can just start going sideways for any for any reason. For what, so what we're really trying to do is we're trying to eliminate up or down. And the um, in, if you can eliminate down, then that leaves you to invest for sideways to up. And that, George, when you say I've been bullish for a while, it's been that it's been that sort of context. So it's so it's like the way I manage the fund is is that I'm, it's not a traditional, it's a hedge fund, but it's not in the sense that I'm always long or always short. Um, I only go short when the environment is when the data supports the idea that the market can go down. And so uh, currently I have no short exposure on because the, the data, as I'll show you, um, doesn't support the idea that the market is at risk of going materially lower. So of the two scenarios that I can point to that are that are remaining, I'm left with sideways to up. And systematically, I can I can identify which one is the prevailing uh, environment right now. And it's definitely sideways, regardless of what the MAG7 or the I call them the management index, which is basically a an acronym for the nine stocks that are in that acronym, um, they, they despite what that group or cohort of stocks is saying, the, the the truth is the average stock has basically been going sideways for two years. So I think the idea is that we're in this sideways range, waiting for a catalyst to take us out of the range. And so, you know, when when the the, the analogy I like to use is that when the market's trending either up or down, I think about that as burning fuel, and when the market's going sideways. I think think about that as chopping chopping wood or digging for oil, if you will. So if 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 that's right to think about it that way, then I would say that for the last two years we've been chopping wood. So we now have this massive pile of wood 
just waiting for a catalyst to spark it. And as it stands right now, the data supports sideways to up. So at the, at the margin, the, the next incremental move I would anticipate would be up. And so I'm just waiting for uh, the, 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 that sort of fundamental perspective of the market to begin to inflect in this systematic process that we'll talk about um, that, and then unleash the next cyclical bull market. That, and, and in that window, I wouldn't be surprised if, if the MAG-7 underperformed for quite a while. Not necessarily go down, just underperform, and and just don't you know it ends up not being the best place to be. Okay, well let's let's pick up with that, um, Dave. So as that saying always goes, it's a market of stocks. There's a lot going under the uh, lot going on underneath the surface, and the soundbite indices often don't tell the full story. That's been particularly the case the last year or so with the Mag Seven. So if you drill down a little bit, uh, I recall from past uh, conversations and reading research. You've been, for instance, a proponent of the industrial sector. So do you want to talk about maybe any sectors or market caps whether or styles, whether it's, you know, mid cap, small cap, large cap, uh, industrial, sickles, whatever value, or, or by sector, like what, what sort of catches your eye? What's your conviction in terms of, you know, what, what, what do you think looks most promising uh, to the upside or to the downside? Well, to me, I think, um... The, the the one thing that's and this has been true since well, well at, at uh, for industrials actually if you look at industrials look at the relative performance cap weighted versus the cap weighted index the relative performance of industrials actually bottomed on the day close to the day that the S&P itself peaked in in January of 22 and so when you're going through a bear market obviously the first step is to identify that, that you are indeed in the bear market and and um and obviously as soon as possible. But once you've done that and you've taken steps to, to mitigate the, the fact that the environment has transitioned from uh, sideways to sideways to down, then, and you've positioned your portfolio accordingly, the next most important thing to do in that, in, from that point forward, in addition to managing the portfolio and managing risk in, in, in uh, the, the, the gyrations of the market, but from a research perspective is begin to follow and, tr and try to identify those things that are doing better than they should be doing, despite the fact that you're in a bear market, and uh, and you can think of about anything that typically has beta or does be you know does has an upside sort of skew to the market whenever the market's doing well. Conversely, has a downside skew whenever the market's doing poorly. It does worse, so it has a high beta. Um, when when you can identify um, uh, a segment of the market that's doing that's outperforming the market during a bear market when it should be fully participating in the bear market, you have a pretty good indication that that's the market's way of, of sort of tipping its hand for you so that you can see the cards of the future and what the future leadership looks like. And so I, I was really uh, stunned to watch industrials pretty much outperform the market throughout the entire bear market. And then the, the equally weighted industrials began to outperform about three, three months later. So to me, the, the last time something like this happened was during the uh, the global financial crisis and we were managing a, uh, a long only portfolio at that time and we were uh, we were about ninety five percent cash not because we had any notion of what was that that the global financial crisis was coming but because we, again we were just following our process um, but once we did that once we got got to our our the, the the portfolio position to where it should be next step was to let let's see if we can find things that that are tilting their hand to say that we're leadership for the next cycle. And so what we knew at the time in the global financial crisis was, was that everybody was getting laid off and all these jobs were disappearing and banks were going bankrupt and people, you know, threats of or concerns of runs on the bank and all these other things. And in that moment, what's the sector you would not expect to be outperforming? 
easily consumer discretionary. It usually doesn't outperform in a bear market anyway, but this isn't just a bear market. This is the end of the world. This is like, we're all gonna die. And despite that, consumer discretionary was, was outperforming. And then another, another asset class that definitely requires an optimistic rose-colored glass, glasses, if you're gonna invest here, is biotech. I mean, you, it's, biotech is all about the future. There's no, there's no such thing as looking at historical financial statements for, for, uh, for biotech. It's all about the future and it's all about optimism. And in the throes of the global financial crisis, biotech outperformed. So obviously in that window of time, they were going down, but they were going down less. And they were certainly going down less than they should have if they were actually uh, contributing their weight of beta, which, which they've had up until that moment had historically had. And so when the market finally bottomed in 09, guess what the two best performing sectors were? Consumer discretionary and biotech. So along those same lines, I think we can we should have we should have the same expectations for industrials going forward. And then just more broadly speaking, off the October bottom, one of the things that's kept me from really embracing a bearish uh, perspective on the market uh, was has been the fact that just you know all through this banking crisis and all all through these other setbacks that we've had since the October bottom, the five leadership sectors have consistently been cyclical. And again, if you believe that the market is the best macro strategist, the best economist, et cetera, on the planet, and has the ability to look forward six, six to 12 months and make an assessment of what it sees and then let that be reflected in securities prices, if you believe that, then you have to ask yourself, well, what, what on earth does the market see if it's consistently been the case since October, through, even through the banking crisis, that these five sectors these five spots of leadership, the top five spots, have all consistently been cyclical. So when, when I when I think about what the future looks like, I, I think the market's trying to tell us. I actually believe that off the October bottom, the lows were in, and I actually was pretty bullish. I had uh, I had covered all my shorts, and then the banking crisis hit. I put on some more shorts and whatnot. But the the idea was that that none of that, even the banking crisis, did anything to do derail the, the, the all the work that was done off the October bottom. And so what I believe is we're, we're set to see going forward is that the bull market that tried to get started at the beginning of this year is going to is going to get started again at the beginning of next year. And, <laughs> and I think, you know, we'll see technology, discretionary, uh, maybe even some financials uh, and um, some smattering of materials and, and uh, maybe some healthcare, biotechs and things like that lead in uh, in 20 in 24. So, Dave, so David, I apologize. I think the image is a little bit blurred, but if you look up at, in the nest, the first, I put the slides up that you had sent to me. Um, the first slide's entitled Sustain Low Volatility to the Whole Market yeah. Markets. And in that, you, you, show the, um, you show the relative strength of the various uh, sectors. So maybe talk about the slide a little bit. The one sustained low volatility is a hallmark of bull markets, and, 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 it, and it, it identifies specifically the sectors you were just referring to. Yeah, this this is this is a um, a good example of what I'm talking about. So, uh, in the top left hand corner, uh, and, and again, if anybody wants these slides, I I'm, I apologize they came out blurry up there in the nest, but if anybody wants these slides, George, they can reach out to me um, through my website. You can find my email address or just, just ping me on Twitter or LinkedIn and I'm happy to send them to you. But, um, what we're looking at in the top left-hand corner is a box that has the 11, the 11 sectors. And I, I want to stress that in the analysis that I do, it's uh, 20 in the U S it's 2,600 stocks and it's all done equally weighted. So I, I definitely follow all of the sectors cap weighted because there's information in that too, especially when you compare one to the other equally weighted versus cap weighted. 
Um, but I just want to stress that in this, when you're looking at it, it might be a little bit puzzling to see how things are based on this analysis, but it's because everything I'm doing is equally weighted. So it's from the bottom up measuring the trend. Did we lose you, Dave? Yeah, I can't hear him either, George. Yeah, can you hear me? Yeah, Dave, we lost you for a second there. Go, wind back 20 seconds. Yeah, sorry about that. Um, so, yeah, so the, the this table in the top left corner of this um, – of, of this first slide is just showing you what the um, this three the the third column over is just showing you what percentage of that sector is experiencing below average volatility for its own history, and you can see you go all the way down almost to the bottom of the list before you get to something that's below fifty, and the two that are below fifty, meaning that the sectors are still experiencing above average volatility at the individual stock level, are healthcare and real estate, but everything else currently is experiencing below average volatility. Now, why is that important? It's because when you look back in history, um, and, and this is particularly important today because the VIX, the volatility index is, be, is below 20 and it's kind of, it's below 14 and 15 and it's kind of, you know, threatening to get below 10. And, you know, I guess we can hope for that anyway. Um, but the, some, of, some of the dialogue that's coming out with respect to that is that, you know, the, the VIX is low. So therefore we're, we're setting up for a bear market. When I, I can I can understand why you would uh, have that view because when you look at every bear market that's ever happened, it's followed a period of it's followed uh, low VIX readings. The problem with that is that those low VIX readings have oftentimes have persisted for years before they actually resulted in a bear market. So the way to think about it is that low volatility doesn't cause bear markets. Bear markets cause low volatility to become high volatility. So in, in, in sort of like a summary way to think about that is that low volatility is a hallmark of bull markets. So when you have persistent, low, persistently low volatility, that's the market way, market's way of telling you that things are settling down and we're getting ready to trend. And when you just look at this, this chart, you can see these big green boxes. Those are the green boxes that highlight periods of low volatility, sustained low volatility where the VIX was, was, was below 20 for a prolonged period. And you can see that every every bull market we've had has overlapped with very low volatility. So at the index level, from the VIX perspective, the VIX hit the uh, the ten week average of the volatility index has been below twenty for um, six months. That's a prolonged period in this in this study. And then so that's from the top down. From the bottom up, um, nine of the eleven sectors are experiencing below average volatility. So that tells me that we're kind of setting the stage for the markets kind of getting ready to launch into a bull market got it all right let's 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 uh, we don't want death by powerpoint but some of these slides you have are, <laughs> real, are really interesting dave so let's just whip through them quickly the yeah. next one for everyone if you can't read it and dave this this blew me away when you when you showed me this uh it shows how the uh the the xlf the the the, the financials etf is back up to its uh basically back up to its march highs before it crashed Whereas the banks are sipping the leg. Nevertheless, everything's picking up. What, what, how does this chart speak to you, Dave? Why'd you put this in here? Well, it, it's incredible to think about it because, so number one, first of all, the, the reason I, I, it came, it, it sort of surfaced in my research process is because um, with, with the pullback in interest rates and the pullback in oil, the financial sector 
equally weighted, remember that's equally weighted, has worked its way up into the number three spot. Again, this is another cyclical sector, a very important one that's worked its way into the leadership. And, and as always, you can't have two sectors occupying the same spot. So what got pushed down? Energy. So energy is now down at number five. So it, it, it immediately got me to, to start digging into the sector. And the first thing I noted was that the, the XLF, which is the, e, the cap-weighted uh, ETF for the financial sector, has recovered beyond its banking crisis uh, levels, which, which is incredible to think about the fact that it's been able to do that when banks themselves, which are a very significant percentage of the, the banking uh, of the financial sector, are still well below that comparable level. So that just goes to show you that if you were to look at financials X banks, this this black line uh, representing financials overall will be much higher. So from that perspective, uh, financials, man, they they sure they look they look pretty primed to 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 do some pretty special things in in twenty four and in in it's a and it's across the board too. It's it's um, every 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 industry within financials outside of banks that's tied to. Um, the market, in other words, is highly correlated to what the market does. Every one of them currently has a, a, a relative strength rank that's above 50. So on a scale of 100 to, to one, 100 being the best, all of the market geared industries within financials are ranking above 50 right now. So again, if the market's good at doing fundamental and in uh, macro analysis, you have to ask yourself if, if this is true, then it has to be seeing positive things in 24. Excellent point. Yeah. All right, let's move on to the slides three and four. Um, you, these may require a little more explanation, Dave. So tell us what you got here. Yeah. So, so three and four—they're basically the same slide. Um, so I'll just describe three. But this is the this is the financial sector. So this is looking at all the stocks in the financial sector that I cover, and just showing you. Remember, it's it's long-term trend, medium-term trend, and short-term trend. Where are all the stocks in the sector? And what I'm showing is under long-term trend, you can see at the end of the last quarter, because remember the long-term chart for me is the quarterly chart. So as of the end of the last quarter, um, if you look at the bottom bottom uh, of the table, third row up, is it shows you what percentage of the financial sector is in a is in a long-term uptrend. And it's only 32% as of the end of the last quarter. So with this big move off the October bottom, we can see that it hasn't really translated yet into uptrends. So we can see that it's gone from 32 to 35. So we st that means, this is important, that means we still have 65% of the financial sector is still in a fundamentally driven downtrend in that long-term chart, which is probably, which is the majority of which is banks. But what we can see is that that, that blue arrow that I'm showing is that 34% of the sector went from a clear downtrend where it's hitting new lows to a uh, a base of a downtrend with a positive bias. So we now have 40%, it's the biggest bucket, that's why it's colored blue, 40% of the financial sector is in a big quarterly timeframe base set to go higher. That doesn't mean it's going to, but that's the setup. And so remember, talk, think about the bases as being that pile of wood waiting for a spark. So 40% of the financial sector is, is sitting in that sort of base waiting to go higher. And then the, the way the whole the reason I so, so the most important time frame is long term that quarterly time frame. The reason I follow the other time frames is because that quarterly time frame can't possibly. So this is this is another one of those inviolable rules uh, of of trend following. This is like this is a, just a truthful statement, it, it, and it will never not be true. And if you can build a process around these kinds of statements, then you, you it's going to be pretty tough for you to 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 to. Uh, off the road you're supposed to be on. It doesn't mean you're going to make money all the time, but it does mean you'll 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 catch the majority of the the, the big trends. So the idea is that 
trend following is fractal in nature. So the long-term trend, that quarterly chart can't get better unless the monthly gets better first, and the monthly can't get better unless the short-term weekly chart gets better first. So when you do that, you look at the, the, the weekly charts in the financial sector, you can see that right now, as of last Friday, 75% of the sector is in a clear uptrend on the, on the, on the, uh, the, the weekly chart. So that's an, a, a required precursor to the monthly trend getting better. So now what we can do is we can say, okay, now we have the, the, the benefit of doing this on, the, on that weekly chart is if you want to take long positions here, now you have structure that you can actually use as a stop. When everything's in a downtrend, you can't do that because there is no place to place your stop except maybe on a, on a new low. But now that you have big rallies on the weekly chart, you now actually have places to place your stop, which you didn't have before. So now you can make the bet that things are going to get better in 24. And now you have a place to put, put your stop in that, in that, in that uh, scenario. And then over on the right is this thing that I call the risk gauge. And so the, the, the stuff on the left, that that's just pure price trend in the risk gauge is that price trend that you see plus relative trend, price momentum, breadth, and volatility. Those are the five things that go into this risk gauge. And, and the reason it's those five things and not things like valuation or sentiment or um, you know what the Fed is doing or what the economy is doing or anything like that is because these five things are inviolable. This is another one of those, those sets of rules is that these five things must happen first in order for the market to transition from one regime to another. And so if we track these five things, knowing that they're going to be roughly the same from cycle to cycle, um, then, then we can track them closely enough to be able to say, okay, this cycle's changing. And again, it's all fractal in nature. And you can see that in the financial sector, that short-term risk gauge is at a two, which is risk on. And so now that's the precursor that must happen for that medium term to go from six to eventually risk on. And, and I have this data all the way back to 1950, uh, survivorship bias-free data back to 1950. And I've been able to study every bear market bottom since then. And the way it works is that you get to extreme momentum on the short term, which again, the more extreme, the better. So if we get really extreme momentum readings in here and everybody starts getting bearish because of that, flip it, because that's actually what you want. The more extreme, the better, because that extreme nature of short-term momentum is what's required to pull the medium-term monthly charts into an extreme reading. And once you have both of those in extreme and every bear market bottom since 1950, that's been enough to say that the lows are in. And, and eventually that long-term quarterly chart follows. So in other words, we've never had a bear, we've never had after a bear market bottom, we've never had the short-term and the medium-term get to extreme without the quarterly timeframe following later. So obviously you can see here, we're not extreme yet on the, on the quarterly, uh, excuse me, on the monthly, but we've taken the first necessary step to say that we will. And then just, what do I mean when I say that? Well, part of what biases me to, to think that is that, is that, Remember that the, the five sectors that are leading are all cyclical in nature. So the market's geared to go higher. We have this massive pile of wood waiting for a catalyst. And we have now got, if you look in the middle of the, of the, of the table at the bottom, you can see 91% of the financial stocks are experiencing uh, positive momentum. And then 88% are experiencing positive momentum on the monthly chart. So this is all precursors to a bottom. And, and so this is what the financial sector looks like. Of course, the, the other two sectors that, are, that rank higher are tech, in industrials, they look even better than that. We lost you, Dave. Earth to Dave. You there? Yeah, we lost you for 10 seconds. Go ahead. Sorry. Um, yeah, so if you if you just go to the next slide, George, it's, this is, I just wanted to show the, the, um, uh, the same exact slide for the entire market. And you can see where we are now. So 
well, the, in the in the quarterly and monthly time frame, we don't have a majority of uptrends yet. But look at how extreme the the short term is. The risk gauge on the market overall is at a one, which is a really important precursor to the the the, the quarterly time frame eventually following. And so this is this is kind of what we have, and we now have enough improvement at the margin to now be able to manage the risk of whatever long positions we take on. And I think in this environment, you just shouldn't have short exposure on because this is not what it looks like to in terms of being in an environment where you get rewarded for being short, at least not meaningfully. I mean, you could you could short something and make 5% because it pulled back for a day or two or a week or two, but that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about, you know, a, a decline like last year. That's what I try to short. Right. All right, let's finish up on the charts and then we'll go to Q&A with, yeah. the, rest, with the rest of the audience. So your fifth chart um, says, what happens after no new highs in 22 months? What's the point you're trying to get across here? Yeah, so this is this is that that, that big pile of wood. So you going back to 1930 when the S and P has gone at least 22 months without hitting a new uh, two-year high, which is which you can see is marked by all those blue lines, those blue vertical lines. Um, in only two instances did the market go meaningfully lower, which we can see was in the 1940s, and then again in uh, 2000. One to two thousand two, we went meaningfully lower after after going at least twenty two months without hitting a new high. Aside from those two moments, we had two scenarios where the market kind of uh, meandered around a little bit, but uh, but then followed with a new with a bull market after that. And then the rest of them, by the time you had gone twenty two months without hitting a new high, you had already the market had already bottomed. And I think we we you know this current environment fits that mold in the sense that we bottomed back in you know over a year ago. And we've now gone 22 months without hitting a new high. All these other things that I'm talking about in terms of the inflections we're seeing, the leadership, suggest to me that we're going to follow the roadmap that we're that are highlighted by those green arrows, where where you know we're on the on the precipice of at least a cyclical bull market, if not another um, you know meaningful three to four year bull market for you know getting getting started in 24. Right. So again, the overall message here is you're not. You're, you said before, there's you know, three directions, down, flatten up. You're not worried about a big down right here is, is the main point. I mean, whether we go sideways for a while or up, you're as opposed to, I don't know, I don't want to say consensus or whatever, you're pretty relaxed about, about the market overall. You think we're flat to up. Is that, is that, your, is that what you're saying? Yeah, and, and it's, and it's the, the important takeaway there, though, is, is that it's not that I, I don't think we're going to go down. It's that I know what it looks like vis-a-vis -vis this modeling process that ha what, what has to happen in order for the market to go down. And, and it certainly doesn't look like what's happening right now. So you could say, well, this, this big move off the, um, off the recent October bottom is just the rally you should be shorting into. That, that could be true, but if it's true, you're going to see it inflect in the, in, in the data to say that, okay, you should start to get short now. And, I, and I'll tell you, like, look, the, when we rallied last year in, in, uh, from, from the June lows in, um, in the summer to the October or to the August peak, that was about a 20% rally. And in this process at the time, the, uh, the monthly and quarterly risk gauges were in risk off. So this was, this was as bad as it gets when you had that 20% rally across the range, which, which was, which was a meaningful by anybody's measure was a meaningful rally. The short-term timeframe went into risk on, but the meet the monthly and quarterly timeframes didn't budge from being risk off. So that, Taken together, this is again why I do the three time frames time frames of analysis. Is to what it basically said was this was a bear market rally in the in the fundamentally driven monthly and quarterly time frames. The market doesn't care about this rally, and so that that rally you should have shorted. 
that rally, you should have, you know, reduced your long exposure, but we don't have that setup right now. Got it. All right. Let's go through chart six, a very important one. This yeah. talks about regime change and the change in correlation between stocks and bonds. So maybe just touch briefly on this one and then we go in more. Yeah, six and seven, they're basically the same chart. It's just showing two different perspectives. But so I'll explain the first and then we can briefly touch on the next. And I and I do think, George, this is a really important chart going forward for the next not months, but potentially years uh, if, if this plays out. But um, when, when we go to business school, uh, one of the first things they teach us about valuing securities is that you want to kind of look out into the future and uh, assess what you think the stock is worth in the future and then pick some sort of a discount rate based on your risk of being wrong. In other words, your your risk premium, and then you just discount that future value to the present. That's what the stock's worth today. And if you can buy it below that, that's a good value. And, and, um, and so that notion puts into our heads and we're taught that therefore rising interest rates is bad for stocks. Falling interest rates is good for stocks. And that, of course, that intuitively makes sense. Unfortunately, it's not true. Um, at least not always. And it's one of those relationships that actually is highly regime dependent. And that's what this chart shows is that from the, the 1970s up until about 1997, 1998, there was indeed an inverse relationship between interest rates and the stock market. So whenever interest rates went up, the stock market went down. And the reason that was is because if you, we, we all know that the 1970s was a, it was a highly inflationary environment. So coming out of the 1970s bear market, any sign that inflation was coming back vis-a-vis -vis higher interest rates drove the stock market down. And you can see at the bottom, the bottom of the table of the, of the chart, you can see that inverse negative correlation. But you can see also on this chart, something happened right around 1997-98 to completely flip this relationship. And the, the correlation between the two became positive. So whenever interest rates went up, the stock market went up and the reason was and we, we you know because we didn't know this at the time as, as to as to why it was but what the market was trying to tell us in its infinite wisdom being the best macro strategist on the planet that it is is that we are there is a wave of deflation coming and so from here any signs that there wasn't deflation the stock market embraced it so what's one sign that there isn't deflation coming well it's higher rates so whenever interest rates went up the stock market went up whenever interest rates went down the stock market went down because falling interest rates in that regime was it was threatening impending deflation and of course deflation is really bad for uh, financial assets and what i what i would point out on this chart is over on the right we just completed one of the one of the longest runs of negative correlation between rates and and stocks in in the last 20 years warning that this whole regime may be flipping on its head again in the sense that going forward the market might be more worried about inflation and a whole lot less worried about deflation, meaning that when rates go up, that could be bad for stocks. And when rates go down, it could be good for stocks. And we, we're clearly seeing that relationship over the past year. And, and I think that's something to think about going forward, because we all know that, that the 10-year yield just broke a 40-year secular downtrend. And so it, it would behoove us to think about going forward, the idea that rates are going up going forward would be bad for stocks and so the, the the next slide is just showing basically the same concept but but instead of um instead of looking at the the correlation between stocks and rates we're looking at the correlation between stocks and valuation and the way we're looking at valuation is earnings yield which is just basically taking the p ratio and inverting it and so you, now you can compare the valuation of the stock market to the valuation of the bond market and you can see that for 
from the 1970s right up until that, that, that wave of deflation hit, they were highly positively correlated. And then that flipped throughout the 2000s, uh, 2000 to 2000 to presently. And you, we, just, we just finished the, the, the longest streak of positive correlation between these two. So now going forward, that means potentially that rising rates are going to be bad for valuations. And so that's something to think about when you're kind of thinking about what, what the message of the market is going forward. That's terrific. All right. Um, let's now turn to the rest of the folks in the, in the room. Um, we've got a couple of friends here, friends of the room. Uh, we're going to go first to uh, Daniel and uh, then to Michael. Daniel, good to see you. What's on good your mind? Good to see you, George. Uh, uh, and thanks for having Dave. And Dave, thanks for being here. My pleasure. Thanks for having me yeah, on. Yeah, I'm... Uh, really impressed with uh, everything you've laid out and as you were talking um i was looking at the uh the uh, banner cycle chart um and i just wanted to know your thoughts because many are saying that recession is coming in 2024 um and the banner cycle here was a year off a year late or his prediction was a year early rather which would land us right. in a recession next year if you were looking at that chart and according to what you're saying sort of puts us right at the beginning of a three-year upward trend starting now so is it possible that what you're um saying could could be put off for a few months or are we in the beginning stages of this upward trend that you described? Thank you. Yeah, of course. Um, no, I, I actually think that's right. I think, I think um, that, that we, we should go through some sort of a churning process. And the reason I say that is because we've had this 10% rally across the range. Um, but as I showed at the, uh, on this, I think it was the second slide, um, but, but nonetheless, maybe the fourth slide, was that despite this massive rally across the range, we still have the vast majority of stocks in a downtrend in the fundamentally driven timeframe. So there, there's, there's two things. There's analysis in, in acknowledging what is, and then there's trying to figure out what to do about it, but most importantly, when to do it. And so what, what I advise, was advising the clients back in, in October, and, and frankly, what I did in, in the fund was, was um, when the market was really very compressed and oversold, and if and if I was right at the, if this analysis was right at the time about 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 the the more likely scenarios going forward with sideways to up, the the, the time to place that bet that that's the, that analysis is right is when the market's oversold. So the, the, those, everything I'm saying right now, the time to act on that was back in October when it was oversold. Now that we're back across the range, still in a downtrend, this isn't the best place to get all lathered up about the market and get all bullish and, and whatnot from here for me to get bullish from here what i would need to see is more strength i need to see some of these uh these bases that have been kind of in place for two years now break out in other words start start to see some of these some of this uh pile of wood catch fire if you will and, and if and in that scenario what the, the the best thing you can see uh and the best thing that you want to see is an extremely overbought condition and in that scenario, I would just say buy with both hands because you're not going to get anything more than probably a 5% pullback. Um, whereas I can't really say that right now because we, we still have, we've gotten, we've gotten quite overbought. We've gotten quite extended as that data shows on the slides, but we're still, we still have a lot of overhead resistance. So the, the note that I sent out this morning to clients was 
was using this analogy between you know how a, how a rocket takes off from Earth and it basically you you ignite the the fuel and the 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 force that the rocket's fighting all the way up before it finally leaves the atmosphere is gravity and then it hits it leaves the atmosphere and it and it hits um, uh, you know maximum speed and off it goes um, the, the 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 analogy that carries through on the stock market is is the, the fuel is the overbought condition and we, and we get this big momentum off the bottom. The gravity that's still pulling down the, the stock market today is all these overhead resistance points and these downtrends. So we need, before we can hit escape velocity and get out of the atmosphere, if you will, and enter the space of bull market, if you will, we need to get, we need to get through these bases. And so the idea is I, I think we're going to, but what I think and what I do in a portfolio oftentimes are not connected because this isn't the best time to place that bet. What I'd rather do now, if you haven't placed the bet yet, is I'd rather wait and just kind of let's see if we can get some one of two things, get some sort of a pullback that doesn't do any damage to the, the, the work we've done off the October bottom, then start buying or plow through these resistance points and start to inflect trends like like the, 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 the sector that probably has the most downtrends in the long term quarterly time frame, believe it or not, is, is technology. So as strong as it's been. It's probably the the sector. Uh, I can check the data if you want me to. I have it here live in front of me. But 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 it's one of the worst sectors in terms of long term trends. So even if technology is going to lead from here, this is an inviolable rule of trend following. It can't lead from here unless it starts to inflect these fundamentally driven downtrends on the on the quarterly time frame. So I think it's going to because the five sectors that are leading have been lead, have been cyclical since the October bottom. We, you know, the pullbacks have been orderly, volatility is low, every sector but two has below average volatility. All these things come together as a part of the mosaic to say, the, what's the market trying to tell us? The market's trying to tell us, I believe, that it's setting up to go higher. It's just that right now is not the right, it's not the most ideal time to place that bet, certainly not not in mass, not, not in size, if you haven't done it already. Great. George, great. if I may, with one quick follow-up, sure. that's right. Thank uh, thank you. So, David, I, I I'm a simpleton. I'm actually a tradesman. I own a construction company. I'm not like you guys at all, you and George. But I can actually understand the way you're describing this, and and that's like invaluable for a guy like me. So, I appreciate it. Once a while back, I heard one of the smartest things I ever heard, and I was thinking of this as you were speaking was in any decision-making process, let's say you have uh, three different choices you could make, the best way to make that decision is eliminate the two exactly. uh, choices that are bad. So yep. as soon as you said this theory of, all right, let's, let's eliminate the possibility for down, now we have sideways or up, that's the first thought that came to mind. And that's all I wanted to say. Thank you. Well, Daniel, I I'll tell you the... Um... I'm a. I have a, a ski group that I get, head out west every year, and and almost all of them are in the construction trade. And I'm telling you right now, I'm the dumbest guy in the group. <laughs> These are some some really smart, super successful guys. So I uh, uh, hats off to you for putting in putting in the hard labor and, and the work you have done. But that's a uh, that's a that's a great industry, and some some really smart people in that in that industry. Thank Thanks, you, David. I uh, shot you a follow. Um, Thanks, Daniel. Always good to hear from you. And by the way, uh, you know, I have no commercial relationship with uh, with Dave. But um, for anyone who's interested, you know, please reach out to please reach out to him on Twitter. 
or his email um, is dlundgren, D-L-U-N-D-G-R-E-N, at motor, M-O-T-R-C-M-R.com. Um, he's got clients all the way from the biggest institutions uh, to individual investors, and he has a individual. He has a he has a product which is suitable for individual investors, which isn't gonna which isn't gonna break the bank. So, I urge you, I urge you to reach out if you like what Dave's uh, what Dave's saying. Reach out to him. Um, you know, certainly give him a follow on Twitter. Um, all right, let's move on. Michael, good to see you. I haven't talked to you for a while. What's on your mind, Michael? The floor is yours. George, thanks. Um, always, I mean, thank you so much for coming back to these spaces. I love them. And thanks, Dave. It's very insightful commentary. I would thanks, say, man. I would just say that in terms of, uh, I'm looking at the nifty 50 of the 1970s and that paradigm and how that was considered extremely narrow leadership and when it invariably imploded it took the entire stock market with it. So if the MAG-7, for example, which is, as you've said, is an over-loved, um, over-owned uh, segment out there, if there is an implosion there, and you, you know, we saw NVIDIA go back to 455. We, we, how would it not um, correlate to the rest of the market? That's my question. Yeah, I, this is a this is a really good question. It's a really, it's an important one because a we're living through it, but we also have we have data uh, that goes back far enough that we can make some pretty good insights here. And 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 I would say the the I've actually written a couple of notes on this uh, in in my in my research that there, there are actually two scenarios um, that I guess the high, the high take the high point the high level takeaway is that not all divergences are bearish. So if you look at nineteen 94 as an example, um, that environment was one of the worst bear markets probably since the 70s. If you look at the advanced decline line and, and what the average stock did, I mean, some some stocks got absolutely decimated in that window of time. And we we know, of course, that that was because of one of the worst uh, bond bear markets um, in in history at that at that time. And that sounds awfully reminiscent. Uh, to, to what we're experiencing today. Despite that, that environment that I just described, the S&P itself never went down more than 10% off its highs. So there was a massive, massive um, divergence between what the index was telling you and what the average stock was telling you. And so when, when the market normalized and everything stabilized, that particular instance actually resolved to the upside and ended up carrying through to what ended up being, of course, the uh, the 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 bubble in in 2000. Obviously, I'm not saying that that's what's going to uh, to to follow this particular case, but but it's certainly worth noting that that we need to. I would say it this way: we need to keep an open mind to the possibility that this resolves higher, and and we can we can keep that as an open mind, and we should keep. You always should keep an open mind, no matter what. But as long as the data supports the idea that the market can actually go higher from here, then we need to be open to the idea that this is potentially something a lot more akin to 19, um, to, uh, to, to, to uh, 2004. Another one was 2011. That was a pretty nasty, not as bad as 1994. Um, I'm sorry, I think I said just said 2004. I meant to say 1994. But um, 2011 was 
not quite as bad as 94, but it was pretty bad. And that resolved to the upside. And then the, the, the sort of the gorilla in the room, the one that we all know best, because many of us invested through it. If didn't, if we didn't invest through it, we certainly have learned about it. And that's the bubble in 99. And, and, I, and I'm sure George remembers this well, because I know he he managed through this and had some has some ripe old stories to tell about it. But um, the, the, the day that Cisco peaked, which which was the equivalent of, say, like Microsoft today or or Amazon today, the day that it peaked, every other stock that had been in a bear market since the 1998 bottom bottomed. So from 1998 to 2000, it looked on the surface like the market was in a bull market. And this is the this is where I learned because uh, I've been doing this since. Uh, 89. So this, I was invested through this and in, 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 uh, conducting analysis, all trend following technical all through this period. This window of time was where I learned the value of, of separating the equally weighted market from the cap weighted market, because in the most important moments, the, the cap weighted indices, they, they lie and they do everything they can to, to conceal the truth. It's like a, it's like a shell game in, uh, on the sidewalk in New York City. And we're all watching the, the S&P when the, when the actual nut is in the other shell. And what, so what happened was from 1998 to 2000, it looked like there was a, a, a very strong bull market. And if you just read the headlines and you just followed the stocks that were winning, you'd be like, wow, this is an unbelievable bull market. But George can verify this because I'm sure he remembers it well. The average stock actually went down during that period, or at least went sideways during that period and many stocks went down. Some of the best value managers in the business that had been in the business for 30 years at the time were pushed out of the business because they kept buying these things as they went lower and lower. And I worked with several of them at the time that, that just, you know, this is where this is one of the windows in, in my career where I learned to to really respect the message of the market. You, you I, may disagree with it, but don't I, argue with it. I disagree with it in one respect. Didn't this already transpire? Doesn't this from 2021 to 2023, it already happened to a lot of fund managers, which is kind of the mirror of what happened to 98 to 2000. Yeah, so that's a, that's a great point, and 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 it's a it's a good um, uh, example of why we, we just need to keep an open mind. And 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 everything I say. Thank you for your commentary. It's really great stuff. Yeah. Sure thing. Um, I would just say that just remember that the the when the when the Nasdaq peaked in 2000, all the stocks that were going down from 1998 bottomed, and so we ended up with a stealth bull market. That's possible here. That's awesome, Dave. That's awesome. All right, we got another Dave in the room, Mr. Nikoski. Good to see you. I know you guys know each other. Welcome, Dave. Yeah, Dave, thanks for having me out. Yeah, what's Appreciate on your it. mind? Dave? What's on your mind, Dave? Well, I, Dave, hey, great to see you. I haven't talked to you in a, quite a, quite some time. So Yeah, it's been a while. How you doing, man? It's good to see you. I'm good. I've known you probably close to 20 years, I'm guessing. Yeah, so, yeah at least. Yeah, so, um, yeah, I, I'm kind of in the same camp that you are, you know, probably mid-October, you know, I, I going through the Russell 3000 and doing it, you know, kind of a bottoms-up approach. You know, I mentioned on several spaces, I, I had probably – you know, 5% of banks that were technically attractive and that moved up to, you know, probably 40% in that fourth week of October. And mm -hmm. yeah. next week it was 70%. So, you know, I'm, I'm seeing that, you know, obviously just cru cruising through the charts and looking at it. You know, the average stock in 73, 74 lost 68%. You know, it, it, small caps have been trounced. I, I guess, you know, do you see... 
a topping out in just a, a within the large cap mega seven. And I got on the call a little late, so I apologize. Um, that we just mark time with them. They they can underperform on a relative basis, but you, you know, from underneath, you I, I'm sure you're seeing the same thing I'm seeing. So your thoughts yeah, on that? I, yeah, I think um so you've highlighted two things there that I think are, are important to kind of circle back to. One is systematically observing what's happening. And then the other is, you know, you can do everything you can to try to to map your intuitions that you've learned over the past 30 years of doing this to some sort of a model to let the model do the work for you. But there is nothing more valuable than first understanding what the market's trying to tell you systematically, but then going back and looking at the charts. And and um, I, I, I think when you do that, there, there are just, there are too many charts. When, when you look at all these bases that are being identified systematically, you just look at them and just, and, and just get a sense for for what what a good base looks like like the arc as an example um the arc etf i mean that looks like a pretty good base and i that's just one example but but be, that that chart looks like that because in that in that etf are a bunch of charts that look like that so so this is in contrast to like 2007 when i joined wellington I, my, my one of the first notes i wrote in 2007 which was just before the global financial crisis was like look i don't know what's going to happen but systematically, the breadth is falling apart beneath the surface. So that's what the models are saying. And then when I sit down and look at all the charts, for instance, in the in the consumer space or in finance or or in um, pretty much anything but energy, there are tops everywhere. And they're not just like tops on the daily chart or hourly chart. These are tops on the weekly and monthly chart. So we're starting to get into fundamentally driven timeframes. And when you do that today, I see the opposite. I, I just see all these bases that are priming to go higher. And, and there's some massive, like incredible quality companies that have gone nowhere for two years. And they're just coming off of long-term, again, systematically defined quarterly timeframe supports that are just like, well, I don't know what's going to happen. And none of this is to say that I, I know I ever know what's going to happen. But what I do try to try to do is get be good at knowing when to take action. And if I can take action on a quality chart that has great long-term fundamentals that has low volatility and all these things that come together to make it a good trend following investment and i can do so within five or ten percent of its support that tells me i'm wrong i don't know i think if i do this for the next 30 years and wash rinse repeat that notion i, I think we'll be fine and, and when i'm doing that today trying to connect the visual aspect dave which you just described which i, I thank you for pointing out with the systematic i just when you put it together it's I, I think I think 24 looks good. And then I'll, from here, I'll just respond systematically. Thanks, Dave. Yep, I, I I concur from what I'm seeing from the bottom up approach. So, yeah. Yep. All right. So, um, Dave, question for you. Um, I think I can use the term narrative. Uh, two, <laughs> two of the narratives running around the markets today are two of the flavors du jour, if you will. Uh, everyone's getting excited about gold. Um, you know, charts breaking out, people make the story that goes with it, you know, we're going to value the dollar, blah, blah, blah. So, A, what do you think about gold? And then B, um, I guess the narrative that went wrong, if you wind the clock back a month or two ago, people were getting all fired up about energy, you know, on the way to the bank, that kind of didn't work out. So you mentioned that energy is falling in your rankings. Uh, what do you think about energy and energy stocks? So I guess taking... Um... Take them one at a time. So, so you know, gold 
I think I think you know visually it's hard for me to see this any way than any any way different from what everybody else sees. Which is like if you're a William O'Neill disciple, how do you not look at that monthly chart or that quarterly chart and see this massive cup and handle base? Um, so I, I think it's it's kind of hard not to be bullish on gold. But the question is, especially if you're a portfolio manager managing money for for people, individuals who expect you to, you know, do well over time, I'm not convinced that it that it's necessarily the best place to be. It may be just symptomatic or em emblematic of the environment we're in. And we just talked about the possibility that the market's going to care more about inflation going forward than deflation, which by the way, gold can work in both environments. But if, it ha if it's breaking out of this base, maybe that's the market trying to tell us something. So then I'm thinking, okay, well, if I'm an equity investor and I, I want to take advantage of this, this, uh, this breakout in gold, I, obviously I'm going to look at the GDX and the stocks within it. And when I do that, man, the whole the whole excitement just kind of gets deflated. <laughs> I mean, I guess the chart looks okay. Definitely not something I'm interested in. I mean, when you think about up, down, or sideways, I think it's a table pounding sideways. Um, but consider that that's a table pounding sideways with gold about to break out to all-time highs and, and the gold stocks don't seem to care. That just tells me that, okay, maybe there's a there's a bottom in gold and, and they're not going to go lower in gold stocks and they're not going to go lower, but I'm not sure they're going to beat the other sector, the other stocks and the other 156 industries that I follow. Right. And you just look at the relative performance. I mean, they're, they're scraping the bottom of their relative performance lows back to 2015 and gold is about to break out to all time high. So it's like, there's what I want. And then there's what the market's giving me. And I would, I I'm looking at that gold chart. I'm thinking, wow, this has to translate into a great story for gold stocks. That's what I want. And then what's the market giving me? And I go back and I look at the charts. I'm like, oh, that looks terrible. <laughs> um, the, well, where else can I go? If this looks terrible and gold's about to break out, utilities or, or staples probably look great. Well, they're also at the bottom of the ranking. I'm just forced. The systematic process forces you to face the things you don't want to, oftentimes, that you don't want to face. And the, what we're facing is cyclical leadership, massive bases all over the place. And unfortunately, despite the fact that, well, not, not, the, not the fact, but the apparent evidence stating that the market's starting to care more about inflation, they're just not, the gold names just aren't bubbling up into the leadership. So, and then oil is, is um, you know, it's, I, I'm not, when, when, you, when you look at the risk gauge uh, at the sector level, the, the, the sector that has the highest, the best quarterly timeframe risk gauge reading is, is energy. It's a one. It's the only sector that has a one, which tells you that the long-term structure of the energy space is extremely positive. And it's been it's been up there one and two for for uh, over a year. And so that obviously doesn't mean that it's not going to under that or that it can't underperform for, uh, you know, weeks or months at a time as it did over the past two years from, from point to point. But it is to say that um, we, we need to see a lot more damage done here before we can say that oil stocks are done and they're not uh, they, they shouldn't be considered in a portfolio. So the question is, how much? Well. Right now, it's number five. So what I try to do is I try to populate the portfolio with the first three or four sectors. And I can do that easily without getting to energy. And again, energy is pretty well exploited in the long term. All these other sectors that are at the top, as I said, technology has, uh, has uh, I've, I've said it twice already, so maybe I should just look at it. But technology has, let's see, 41% uh, uh, of the sector is in, a, is in an uptrend in the long term time frame. So over 60% of the technology space is still in a fundamentally uh, driven downtrend. So 
if I'm looking at buying base breakouts with relative strength and everything else, and I have the choice between buying energy that's really not doing it in a technology stock, a, a mid, mid cap technology stock that's not part of the MAGA, not, not sorry, not MAGA, but the, the MAGS ETF, um, I'm going to go with what the market's telling me to do, which is at this point, it's just, it's not energy and it's not gold stocks and then let the chips fall where they may. Great. Uh, Dave, do you um, by chance ever look at um, non-US markets? Yeah, I do. So the um, in the US, I look at 2,600 stocks and outside of the US, it's about 3,800. So I do the same exact you know, trends across three timeframes, risk age and everything else across all the sectors and the various markets around around the globe. Any uh, anything particularly noteworthy uh, when you look at the other markets? You think uh, you know are the sectors sector performance kind of consistent, or do you think the U.S. is maybe going to underperform going forward? Or you know, some people are making the case for emerging markets, especially when you start tying it into the dollar, I mean, let's, maybe we should also talk about dollar a little bit, you know, the inner, inner, intermarket analysis, some people making the case for a lower dollar and in turn, you know, non-US markets can do well, particularly some of the EM markets, of course, recognizing that merger markets are very heterogeneous. So uh, mm. anything noteworthy when you look outside the US? So we, we should definitely talk about the dollar because that has a, a big, plays a big role but i would say if you just do this again systematic if again if we believe that the market is the best macro strategist in the planet and we do this trend trend analysis across three time frames embedded in that the output of that process is what the market thinks the dollar is going to do and what it means to emerging markets so when when we when we analyze where the the markets are, are situated from a trend perspective across these three time frames it's already considering what the dollar is going to do, um, in my view, anyway. And when you do that, there is a pretty clear delineation uh, outside of outside of the U.S. between essentially what's non-Asia, but more specifically non-China, and uh, everything else. So with the, the three the three strongest markets today in my work, and, and it's been this way for quite a while, is is uh, India, which is an unbelievable story. I was over there last year. Uh, and it, just an incredible, vibrant situation, some great high quality companies and massive bases everywhere. So India is number one. Um, uh, Japan, believe it or not, is number two. And then Brazil is number three. And then at the bottom is is uh, China. Uh, China is just not doing it. I mean, it's just, you know, for, for whatever reason in this country, we have we have 10 or so um, China sector ETFs. So you can actually follow China by sectors as well. And there's not a one of them that's in an uptrend. Yeah, and you can you can contrast that with the other emerging markets, and there's there's uptrends everywhere. So um, all of that is to say that it's highly bifurcated. I think you know just to say that the U.S. has outperformed for the last whatever it is, almost twenty years, is obviously a factual statement. But what we're really saying when we say that is that tech has been outperforming for the last whatever twenty years, and and so because of that, because the U.S. has the best tech ecosystem on the planet. That's why the U.S. has been outperforming. So there are other parts of the of the the U.S. market that haven't done that great over the past twenty years, and they kind of map what the rest of the world has done. So the reason the U.S. has outperformed is because it has the best tech ecos uh, ecos uh, space on on the uh, on the planet. So if we're right about the possibility that we're transitioning away from this sort of deflationary environment that 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 benefit that benefited tech. Um, in, in the because they basically were also part and parcel with the with the deflationary impulse that kind of went around the world with all its ability to lower prices, et cetera. So 
if we're if we're stepping back from that, we're actually transitioning to a new regime, which means higher rates, potentially inflation. Maybe it's possible that all of these other non-U.S., more specifically non-tech markets, ha- maybe we're going to be we're going to see escape velocity there as well, because now we've got the weight of deflation is being removed, and maybe the, the tailwind of inflation can now start to. I mean, look at the European market. I mean, that is a massive base back to 2000. And maybe that's what that's about. Maybe that's maybe we're going to see leadership transition there. I haven't seen it yet, but I'm definitely open to the idea that that the next, you know, bull cycle when it finally gets going is is led by non-US, part of which is because these these you know, these 10, you know, 100,000 pound gorillas that are that are in the in the mags uh the, the mags group, the mag 7 a bit and end up being an anchor around the U.S. market because it's just so they're, they're so big and they're going to go sideways or just underperform. So the main thing though is that when you look at the dollar, I follow basically 32 crosses of the dollar. So the dollar versus 32 other currencies, and you can take those 32 currencies and stick them through the same process: long term, medium term, short term, and get calculate the risk age and everything else. And when you do that, I don't know. I I think um, when you look when you look at the risk age on the dollar. Uh, the short term is at a 10, which means it's at the very bottom of the risk off scale. So obviously we know the dollar has been getting hit. It's about as bad as you can get in the short term. But when you look at that same analysis, which again takes into consideration not just price trend, but volatility and breadth and everything else, the, the quarterly and monthly timeframes are a two and a one. And the, the, uh, the dollar is trending positively versus these other crosses versus 78% of them in the quarterly timeframe in 81% in the monthly timeframe. So if the dollar is done, we have to go through a, a significant distribution process before we can really make bets on that. And so in the interim, whenever the dollar is oversold, I'd rather be buying the dollar than selling it. Because the, you're, what you're doing is, when you, when you see the, the the data as I just described it, and we always go back to which, which one can we eliminate? Well, I think we can eliminate sustainably lower from here. Because the... Oops. Earth to Dave, another 10-second disappearance. Dave. Sorry about that. Yeah, Dave, I, I, I was it, you get an incoming call, that's when the thing goes crazy. No, 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 it's uh, it's my phone, uh, the oh. screen goes black, and I'm oh, not paying attention to when right, it happens. All right, just but the, the idea is that when, when, when you have this many uptrends in the long-term charts of the dollar, and you can eliminate, we're always going back to which one can you eliminate, I think because of that, the, the most likely scenarios are sideways to up. And you can eliminate down until you start to see some inflection in these trends. So, so taking that to a portfolio or to an action, that means that when you're that this oversold in that context where sideways is your worst case scenario, I'd rather buy the dollar here than sell it. Well said. Okay, uh, Karang has a question for you. Karang, the floor is yours. Welcome. How's it going, George? Good to see you back. Um, David, your your podcast that you have on um, fill the fill the gap for the CMT Association is definitely worth uh, somebody's listen. Um, Thanks, man. I appreciate that. Thank you. Yeah, no, no problem. You guys have done great work for years as technicians. So I talked to David Nikoski. I'm, I'm sure you both know each other. Um, yep. We talked yep. about emerging markets ex China compared to emerging markets, right? So EEM versus EMXC. Just to add to what you're stating, and even on a relative basis. Um, you can see it there, right? EEM still has uh, equally pretty much waiting when it comes to Taiwan and India. Uh, EMXC, um, it's clear as day and night, right? Comparison because that definitely tells you, as well as even if you take a look at C triple Q uh, versus the Qs, right? Um, yeah, exactly. The quarterly, that's right. 
in the quarterlies, like you spoke about when it comes to trend and the monthlies, um, energy is the only one, like you stated. One thing that I would say also, um, the dollar, right? Since you mentioned that, a lot of people are just only compared, you know, the dollar index, which is the six currencies. Yeah, yeah. As, as David's even explained to other people in Nikoski, um, a lot of those, the world's the world has changed since that came out, right? So mm-hmm. you do have a lot of emerging market currencies. So CEW is another good one because it does have a lot of those emerging market currencies in there. Mm-hmm. That's a wisdom tree ETF. Just to add to what you guys are saying. One question, you already mentioned India, right? You can look at EPI, PIN. Their small caps are participating, right? SMI, yeah, and the mid caps as well. They've been doing very well. Yeah. Um, And then you have a lot of money when it comes to foreign direct investment, right? And foreign institutional investment that's already gone into that market and is still further going into that market. So do you see the Asian Pacific region in general? being where somebody would maybe want to take a look um, outside of the U.S., since you did mention some other regions? Yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, it, you know the, the, what you really want to do is you just want to say, okay, where is the market trying to smash me over the head with a baseball bat to try to get me to look? And just ask yourself that question all the time. And if you can do it before it hits you, that's a good thing, right? So you can dodge it. But um, if you if you're if you do the analysis day in and day out, what the market is hitting us over the head with India, Japan, Brazil, and that's enough to build a portfolio. And then from there, you can just you can just you know ebb and flow with the the um, the leadership as it evolves. But it's um, you know if I'm if I'm managing a global portfolio, which I, I actually am, and all every, all of my exposure is either in the U.S. or it's tangentially uh, in stocks that benefit or like ADRs or something like that. Um, but most of the holdings are 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 beneficiary uh, beneficiaries of the U.S. economy only because that's where that's where the market's been hitting me over the head for 20 years. Um, but I'm I'm ready, willing, and able to just listen to the market when it inflects in, in its next direction. And if you know, again, I I, I think if if we do end up getting a, a shift or an inflationary regime, I, th- I do think you got to look at these other these other. Uh, parts around the world, and and you'll see that follow through with with it. part part of that 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 trend will be a weakening dollar. So if you if if we are on the on the precipice of an inflationary environment, and I just what I just said about where the dollar is in relation to these thirty two currencies, which to your point is, is a great point. It's not just these eight currencies. And by the way, the the, the U.S. dollar or the dollar index is is heavily biased to the um, the euro and the yen. So really, it's almost just two currencies. So this is 32 equally weighted currencies. Um, if this is going to be end up being a bad thing for the dollar going forward, it's going to be a while because there are too many oversold sideways setups that, that have to take place first before we actually go into a top. It's the whole distribution scenario. So for me right now, I don't see I don't see the U.S. necessarily losing its edge in terms of leadership, but I do see enough things at the margin where you want to either take on local exposure in, in these three countries I mentioned, or uh, take on exposure vis-a-vis their, their ETFs. Thank you. Um, and you one more thing, there's, there's a, uh, South Korea has been doing interesting as well, EWY, just as a country ETF, which is, as you mentioned, um, a lot of the other countries do have country ETFs out there. So, Yeah, one, one of the things you want to be always be mindful of, and this is just true of, of any ETF you look at, is first question you want to ask is, um, what, how is this thing weighted? And I don't know what the, um, 
I can check real quick, but I suspect that the EWI is heavily weighted. Let me just open it here. Towards Samsung is yep. 22%. Yep. So just be mindful of that. That's not a bad thing. It, again, none of this is bad. It's just it's just being mindful of, of you know, who you take into the prom. Yeah. The thing is they're industrial based there. I, I think uh, industrial is an is interesting sector globally. So if you take a look at the S&P Global 1200, um, you get a good little consensus. But like you stated, take a look at the constituents of each uh, ETF, especially country ETFs. Thank you right. for the time. My pleasure. Awesome. By the way, for those that are interested, again, I put up in the nest um, Dave's uh, link to uh, uh, Dave to your website. Um, okay, thank you, George. M-O-T-R-C-M, um, For those that are interested, and again, Dave's got a whole range of clients from uh, the biggest institutions on the planet to individual investors. So uh, reach out to Dave um, if you've got another question. Um, okay, well, Dave, this has been awesome. Um, I really appreciate you uh, you coming out and sharing your wisdom uh, with us, and hopefully you'll be back again in the future. I, I think we've all learned a lot here today, and um, uh, it's it's refreshing. So thanks again, Dave, um, and we'll see you around soon. Thanks, everybody, for coming out tonight, and um, hope you all learned something, and uh, we'll see you again next week. Take care. Good night, everybody. Thank you, George. Good night. Good night.